This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello. And welcome to episode 22 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. Guys, today is June 22nd and this is the 22nd episode. Get out. (laughs) Again, we didn't plan that. Nope. (laughs) And I want to officially warn you guys, it is a month away from Doomsday, apparently. If you guys remember last week's story. Hope you guys are prepared. You have a month left. You have a month to end your life. (laughs) Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's saying a lot. This week, we will be covering a true crime story and a paranormal story from the state of New York. And mom is covering the paranormal this week. So what did you bring us to drink? Well, New York always brings to mind fancy schmancy little places and martini comes to mind. Oh, New York City drinking a martini with my sister on a rooftop bar. Oh, yeah, I I wasn't there, but still. (laughs) Um, Also, it's kind of you think of New York City as the Big Apple. Mm -hmm. So I combined the two and I made us an apple teeny. Oh, it's. Not the red apple like you think of as New York. It's a green apple. So, but we're going with it. It's a tart apple teeny. So you fill a cocktail shaker with ice cubes and add to the shaker one and a half ounces of vodka, one ounce of green apple schnapps, one ounce of orange liqueur. Shake until combined, about 30 seconds, strain into a martini glass. Then garnish with thin green apple slice. Okay, we don't have martini glasses because (laughs) we normally don't drink martinis. So we're just drinking a juice glass. (laughs) And And I didn't have a shaker. There's no shaker. So this is not shaken. It is stirred. And there ain't no green apple. (laughs) But there is green apple schnapps. It says... uh, So again, with our little twist... (laughs) A little twist on our own drink here. But I was able to follow the pro tip, which said a flavor boost is to add a squeeze of lemon or lime. So I added a little splash of lemon. Okay. Oh. So I'm nervous to drink this. This is straight alcohol besides the splash of lemon. (laughs) I mean, it was just a squeeze of lemon. So (laughs) this is nothing but alcohol, baby. And we ain't no James Bond. We're having this stirred, not shaken. (laughs) Bond. James Bond. Killer. Killer hangover. (laughs) All right. I'm so funny. Here we go, kiddo. All right. Smells like apple. Are you sure that's just alcohol in there? That is actually really good. Smooth, huh? Like like a sour candy. It doesn't have that alcohol burn taste. It doesn't have that like alcohol 
kick after like an aftertaste of alcohol like it literally tastes like a sour oh no this is dangerous this is now i have to actually say something i made this drink for my husband and myself at home because i was anxious to try it (laughs) i did not add the lemon Mm -hmm. because i didn't have any it really really adds i mean it takes away that i don't know it really adds what takes away that tangy alcohol aftertaste Mm mm-hmm the acidity actually complements the green apple flavor. I was really, really nervous. This is really, really good. <laughs> it literally tastes like a sour patch, kid. Like like a candy. Mm. Scary. Okay, so let's just dive into this true crime, Mom. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, Mom. I'm going to tell you what I tell my four-year-old. Put your thinking cap on. I used to tell him, put your listening ears on. He used to screw his ears ears, tighter to his head. So listeners, either put your listening ears on or put your thinking cap on. Put them both on, okay? We're double dutying it up tonight. Duty. (laughs) Try not to be a four-year-old. This one is really going to screw with your head. This is a true crime story, but it is not a serial killer story. We're taking a little different turn on it's true okay. crime we don't today. always have to do serial killers all right are your ears on is your thinking cap on are we good if you take much longer <laughs> i'm gonna take them off <laughs> again they turned us off <laughs> it's a monday morning and a new york city couple are sitting down for breakfast at a restaurant near their battery park apartment the couple have been married for a little over a year it had been a beautiful ceremony combining their Jewish and South Indian Christian celebrations in honor of their family's views. The two had met while attending the Chicago School of Medicine. The wife, Sneha, was actually a year ahead of her husband, Ron. And so that they could graduate together, she actually took a year off and traveled Europe for the year. The two had received internships in New York after graduating. Ron as an emergency room intern at a medical center in the Bronx and Sneha as an internal medicine intern at Cabrini Medical Center in the city. So back to their breakfast that Monday morning. They went to breakfast around 10 a.m. It was Sneha's day off and she told Ron of her plans to run some last minute errands around the city. But her main thing she wanted to do that day was clean their apartment. Her cousin was coming in for a visit in the next couple of days, and she really wanted to take the opportunity of her day off to clean. They finished with their breakfast, and Ron headed off to work. That evening, Ron returned home from work around 11.15. Sneha was not home. This wasn't odd to him, though. He assumed that she had gone out with friends and stayed the night at maybe her cousin's or maybe her brother's place in the area. So he just went to bed. He was tired from the day and had a very early morning the next day. That next morning, Tuesday, Ron gets up and heads to work on the 645 subway. That morning, it's not only Ron's and Sneha's lives that are about to change. That morning is going to affect thousands upon thousands of people. You see, at 845 that morning, an airplane crashes into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. A moment in time I know I remember where I was and what I was doing. I think most everybody that witnessed it on TV will 
have it imprinted in their mind for I the rest of their life. I was 12 and I know exactly what I was doing, where I was. Heck, it, it touched us in good old small town Manhattan, Kansas. I can only imagine how it affected those living in the city. Mm. At 9.02 a.m., a second plane crashes into the south tower of the World Trade Center. New York is in a state of panic. Upon hearing the news while at work, Ron calls Sneha at their apartment. She did not have a cell phone. It was 2001. So cell phones aren't really like gotcha. common, I guess. Mm-hmm. Their apartment was only about three blocks away from the World Trade Center buildings. Ooh. Phone lines aren't really getting many calls through. I guess the largest cell tower in the city had actually been on top of the World Trade Center. And then as well as all the different calls, calls trying to in. be going yeah. through, it really wasn't working. He was able to leave a message at their apartment, and then he even called his mother-in-law and brother-in-law trying to check in with them to make see if they'd heard from Sneha at all, and they hadn't. Ron hitches a ride on an ambulance to head back to Lower Manhattan. So I guess at first when I was reading the story, I was like, he's an emergency room intern, like he should be helping. But I guess he was told to stay there and wait for them to start bringing in. Stay at the hospital. He was spo- Yeah, he was supposed to stay at the hospital and wait for people to come to him that needed Got help. Got you. Mm-hmm. But nobody was coming in. I mean, it was a disaster. The help was needed there. There. On site. And so he waited and waited and waited until he just couldn't wait anymore. And he was getting so anxious for about his wife and he just needed to get down there. So he hitched a ride on an ambulance to head back to lower Manhattan. So he heads towards their apartment. And because of all the commotion, this normal 45 minute or so trip takes them six hours to oh, make it to down, get there. down there. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. He finally reaches the area around 9 p.m. Well, probably going the opposite direction. I mean, they're... Yes. Going I, mean, I mean, I can't even imagine the panic of everything. I just, I can't. When he finally reaches his apartment, the streets around him are filled with burning cars, fire trucks, and a whole lot of chaos. The whole area is actually blocked off. He's still in his scrubs and actually uses his medical credentials to get into the area. Gotcha. But when he reaches his building, he finds the doors to be locked. All electricity had been turned off in the area, and in doing so, the doors remained locked. So he walked to a friend's house in the West Village and spent the night. Probably a very sleepless night. Mm -hmm. The next morning, he heads straight to their apartment. Their home is covered in dust and debris that had come in through their open window. But no Sneha. There were tracks around the apartment from their two kittens but no sign that Sneha had even been there. Ron reports his wife missing that day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but he is one of thousands of people to do so. Sneha's family puts flyers all over lower Manhattan looking for their daughter. But again, so did thousands of people. Now, I read that more than 9,000 people were reported missing on September 11th. Wow. NYPD went through that list pretty quickly, though. Some names were fraud, some were duplicate, Mm -hmm. and others, thankfully, were found. But the police worked to dwindle the list down. By 2004, so three years later, the total came to 2,749. They dwindled it down to that. Mm -hmm. Still a terrible number. So like I mentioned back in 2001, a couple days after the attack, Ron and Sneha's family were putting Sneha's photo up everywhere they could. 
When Ron went into the 9-11 Help Center, he tried talking to the media that were there, but they weren't interested in hearing from him when he mentioned that he had technically last seen her on the 10th. Yeah. So he went and got Sneha's brother. I read his name differently in a couple sources, but let's just call her brother John. Okay. And now John comes in and he states that he last spoke to Sneha on the morning of the 11th. Quote, I was on the phone with her. And she told me she couldn't leave because people were hurt. She said, I have to help this person. And that's the last thing I heard from her, unquote. So after John says this, she's a hero. There's more focus on her. And her picture is run all across the news looking for her to see where her last whereabouts were. Now remember, the NYPD are working on looking into the names of the missing people as well. There was an open case on Sneha's disappearance. I'm going to dive into this case now. It's a crazy case. It's filled with lies, secrets, and a huge conflict of differences in evidence found by the police and the family. But no zombies. No zombies this week. Sorry, guys. Ron was not pleased with how slowly he thought the police were working on Sneha's case. But remember, September 11th, a lot of people are needed. He hired a private investigator a former FBI special operations agent, Ken Galliant. He researched Sneha's favorite hangouts, interviewed employees of those places, and talked to all of Sneha's friends and co-workers. Let's back up using evidence found in the case. Ron and Sneha went to breakfast the morning of the 10th. Ron went into work, and Sneha went back to their apartment to clean. Around 2.30, she started an IM conversation with her mom. Do you remember those? I do. <laughs> I used to get in trouble all the time as a teenager. And that was my. <laughs> no, I am. <laughs> oh, gosh. Upon looking into these messages, Ron finds that the two women had discussed several things. She told her mom about a party she and Ron had attended the weekend before, where Ron had played the guitar all night, jamming with his coworkers, and mentioned a wedding of one of Sneha's friends coming up in the spring. Sneha mentioned that the reception was going to be held at the Windows of the World restaurant on the top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. She casually mentioned how beautiful she heard the views were and that she wanted to go up there sometime before the wedding to check it out. The women talked for about two hours. Sounds like us. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) God, don't say that. Guys, I have a life. I promise. I don't talk to my mommy all day. Liar. (laughs) Liar. Okay. So she logs off the IM conversation around 4 p.m. Sneha is seen on surveillance leaving the apartment building shortly after this. She heads to a neighborhood dry cleaners and drops off some clothes and then heads to Century 21. Now, I know you're thinking, a real estate office? (laughs) No. Century 21 is actually a pretty high-end discount clothing store in New York City. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. You're welcome. (laughs) Looking into the credit card purchases made there, Ron found that she had made her purchase around 7 p.m. and she had purchased lingerie, a dress, pantyhose, and bed linens. She also went to the shoe annex of the store and purchased three pairs of shoes. She's on the surveillance video of the department store carrying two large bags And this is the last time Ron can see his wife's activities of that day. A sales associate from the store recognized Sneha's face on a flyer and called Ron. 
telling him that she had seen Sneha that night, that she was shopping, and that she was actually with another Indian woman. Okay, she's, wait, wait, wait. So she saw her while she was shopping. She's a sales associate. Right. She worked there. But she saw her with another Indian woman while that she was shopping. While she was shopping. Okay. Mm-hmm. She said the two seemed to be friends, but this woman is not seen on surveillance with Sneha, and this woman has not come forward. So, like I said, the surveillance footage shows Sneha's last known whereabouts, shopping there. She didn't come home. These bags of items have never been found, and I'm seriously curious to even wonder what size these bed linens were. Did they fit their bed? Like... It's interesting, right? right? She didn't stay at her cousin's or her brother's because they're obviously looking for her. Was it really a friend that she was shopping with? Or, you know, like people seem to always want to strike up conversations with me at places. Like I have the most random people coming up and talking to me. So maybe the sales associate saw them talking and assumed they were friends. That's so I weird that to be none of the surveillance cameras pick up. Right. Pick so her up with I anybody. don't know if they went there to, you know, that's why it makes me think that they didn't go there together. It was just either maybe somebody she ran into that she knew or maybe I hate to be like racial here, but because they're both Indian women, she the sale associate assumes that, you know, they're together. I I don't know. I, I have, I, you know, nobody knows. The credit card was not used anywhere else after the department store purchases. Now, I mentioned that Ron had hired a private investigator. This private investigator found two pieces of evidence that might show that Sneha had come back to the apartment after this shopping on the evening of the 10th or the early morning of the 11th. Phone records show that a phone call from the apartment, so from the apartment, had called Ron's cell phone. He was sleeping, but it sh- phone records show that a call from inside their apartment called Ron's cell phone. He doesn't remember this call, and he claims that he was the only one home that morning. He believes that maybe he had sleepily done so to check his voicemails. So you remember back in the day when you'd have to check your voicemails? It took minutes to do right. that, to use your cell phone. So he's thinking he wanted to check his voicemails because he hadn't heard from Sneha at all. Remember, she's out. Well, that was my question. They've only been married a year, mm-hmm. and it was They've not. They've been un- together for, yeah. But it wasn't unusual for her to spend the night someplace else, and mm, we'll get they there. They don't. We'll get tell there. anybody. We'll get there. <laughs> like, we'll get there. I've been married for twenty something <laughs> years, and I don't do that. What the heck? We'll get there. So he thinks that maybe sleepily he called from his apartment to check his voicemail, so he didn't use any of his minutes, okay. and. He doesn't really remember doing that, but he says it's probably what happened because he's like, I'm the only one home. So I don't know who would have called my cell phone when I was sleeping at home. The other evidence the investigator found was surveillance footage from their apartment complex on the morning. On the morning. On the morning. What's up with my accents, guys? They come out randomly. They're terrible. (laughs) (laughs) On the morning of September 11th. Literally minutes before the first plane hits the World Trade Center, Tower 1. But this sighting is not 100%. Because of the time of day, the way the sun is reflecting through the front doors, you can only make out a silhouette of a woman. You can't see any features or anything like that. 
But from what Ron says, this woman greatly resembles Sneha. Similar haircut. Wearing a dress similar to the one Sneha was wearing when she was last seen on the 10th. And Ron says the woman's mannerisms in the footage mimic that of his wife's. The woman, no shopping bags, though, comes in, stands near the elevators. She stands there for a minute or two, and then she turns and she walks out. What? Where was she? The family comes to the conclusion that Sneha must have become a victim of the 9-11 attacks. There was no evidence to show to them that foul play had occurred on the evening of the 10th. Ron is quoted as saying, These kinds of crimes don't happen in lower Manhattan. That somebody goes missing from a homicide and they don't find the body? Killers are usually stupid. They leave clues. A body will show up. Sneha just vanished. 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 One more. (laughs) Vanished. Vanished. With no trace. The only thing that makes sense is that she burned in the World Trade Center. Or that she took off. Mm -hmm. So this is the family story. This is what they believed happened. Sneha went shopping and either purposefully or not purposefully ran into that friend that she was seen shopping with. Knowing that Ron was working late that night, she went and stayed the night with that friend. The next morning... They believe the footage at the apartment does show Sneha, even though the bags aren't there. And because of the timing, the reason why she turned from the elevators and left was because she heard something outside. Which is possible. The crash of the plane. Right. And she went to see what it was all about. And she obviously did perish in the building somehow. Maybe heroically, like her brother John described from the phone call he claimed to have had with her. The family honored Sneha's memory as her name was read off with the victims of the attack at local memorials. And they held a funeral for her, burying an urn filled with ash from the towers. Plaques were put up in Sneha's honor. But even though Sneha's family came to the conclusion that she was a casualty in the September 11th attacks, The police unraveled a totally different story. Police found many records of a different Sneha than what the family was citing. Cabrini, the hospital where Sneha was interning, had not renewed the contract with her after the spring of 2001. As an intern, they didn't renew it? So basically she was fired. I mean, she, yeah. And claimed tardiness and alcohol-related issues to be the reason for this. Alcohol seemed to be a trend in the evidence the police find. Around the time she was let go from Cabrini, Sneha had gone out to a bar with co-workers and had gotten into a fight, actually spent the night in jail afterwards. Oh my gosh! Now, she claimed that she had been inappropriately groped by one of her co-workers, and she filed a criminal complaint. There was an investigation into this, but the Manhattan DA's office dropped the groper's charges and actually charged Sneha with filing a false complaint. Ron claims that this is why she was let go from Cabrini, because she was a, quote, whistleblower. Oh, I gotcha. She had complained about racial and sexual issues there, and they wanted to sweep that under the rug. So keep in mind, this is 2001. There is no Me Too movement, and we all know that this happens 
She is an Indian woman and she could have very, you know, we have to play both sides here because we have, we, we can't, we don't know. We don't have the answers. So I'm trying to give both sides to this case. Now, since then, the hospital has come back saying that there was no formal complaints on these issues by Sneha at all. But again, is that a cover up or is it a cover up? Or maybe she didn't have the guts to go to the board and make a formal complaint. So that wouldn't be. Because she is just an intern. So they couldn't have fired her for being a whistleblower, though, if she never formally complained. I I don't know. It's it's so odd. So police also found that Ron and Sneha's marriage had some issues as well, as you kind of already pointed out. (laughs) The following months after being fired from Cabrini, Everything seemed to be going downhill. She partied a lot, going out and staying out with people that Ron didn't know. She frequented gay and lesbian bars the most. A midtown lesbian lounge named Julie's and a gay rock club, Meow Mix, which sounds (laughs) awesome, being where she was found most often. Now, Ron claims that, um, hello, she had just been sexually groped inappropriately And she felt safe at these bars. It's a place where she could let loose a little more. But according to police, she would leave these bars with women time and time again. Like different women? Mm Mm-hmm. Ron reacts saying that, yeah, she would go home with these women, but not for sex. They would listen to music, sleep, or paint. He said that on one one occurrence, she came home covered in paint. Ron is a little naive. (laughs) But he claimed that her drinking was her way of temporarily dealing with the current situation at hand. I'm feeling more and more sorry for Ron every word you say. (laughs) But the police went on this path of her sexuality, even filing a report that said that John, her brother, had walked in on Sneha and his girlfriend having sex. John and Sneha had not been talking up to the point of her disappearance. That is fact. The walking in on sex part, John claims that never happened. And the detective that wrote that up, he never even talked to him. (laughs) Gosh. I'm so confused right now. (laughs) That phone call John said he received... He came out and did say that that was a lie. It never happened. And he was trying to help the case. But why would police lie about that? There's no reason Why would they just to... pull out evidence like that? For no reason. I mean, that, there's no reason to do that. And help the case. How does that help the case? If you're really trying to find your sister, wouldn't you want to get all the facts out there? But instead, let's lead them down the path towards September 11th attacks. When you should be looking at the actual facts. She never called him. They hadn't been talking for weeks. This downhill spiral even affected her new job at Staten Island St. Vincent Medical Center. She was suspended from that internship for not attending a meeting with her substance abuse counselor. Which makes me think that that was probably just part of her contract. That they hired her. But in hiring her, she had to meet with this counselor. I gotcha. 
The hospital's not come forward with this fact, but that's just kind of what I gathered from it. Well, that's kind of personal, too. I don't know that yeah, they I don't could they legally could. do that. No. So that morning of the 10th, yes, they had breakfast, but Sneha actually had a court hearing about the false complaint she had made. She pleaded not guilty. After the arraignment, a police report states that the couple fought loudly outside the courthouse. So everything you just said in the beginning of this podcast was not true. Is that what you're saying? Who knows what the truth is, mom? Who knows? They yelled at one another, yelling about her problems, her nights out, etc. Ron claims the fight never happened. After reviewing all the evidence, the New York City medical examiner removed Sneha Phillips' name from the official list of victims in 2004. Ouch. There was a lot of back and forth in the courts, lots of appeals, lots of proceedings. So to make a long story short, in 2008, a five-judge panel reversed the initial decision stating that evidence shows, quote, highly probable that Sneha had died in the World Trade Center attacks. So we're back to the Trade Center. Yes. Okay. This is a quote from the 2008 hearing. Since it is not known where the descendant spent the night of September 10th, it requires speculation to say, as Petitioner does, that her route home, southwest of the World Trade Center, took her across or dangerously near the World Trade Center grounds, or that at 8.48 a.m. when the attacks began, she was even in the vicinity of the World Trade Center. It goes on to say that they do not require an absolute certainty. It merely requires that the evidence make the conclusion highly probable, even without direct proof. So I won't read the whole quote. I don't want to bore you. But without proof, it's just super probable that she died in the attacks. Either she was walking by or she was walking back from being out and she decided, oh, maybe I do want to go check out that restaurant there for my girlfriend's wedding in the spring. Or maybe she that was her. She wanted to maybe that really was her in the video. And maybe, yeah, she heard the crash outside. And so she went out and she did go try to help. And then she perished by helping. We Nobody knows. The day is a mess, as we all know. They also dismissed claims in the police reports saying that the reports were made on hearsay. So the judge basically wiped all those police reports out that were gathered on the investigation saying that was all hearsay. So the lesbian bars and yes. the alcohol abuse and was just hearsay. Apparently. Even though this she is was... what the courts did. Okay. If she had died some other way, evidence would have arisen by now. And then there's the opinion that she took this opportunity to just walk away from her life. I don't know why you're looking at me, but that's my, that's, that's what I think. So it's kind of creepy. There's this website, it's called Post Secrets. And every Sunday, people send in postcards to this place. They write their deepest, darkest secrets on these postcards. Okay, and they I think send I've it. Heard of this? And they send it to this place called. I think it was a movie, Post. and they made a movie about that. No, <laughs> no. But they send it to this website called Post Secrets, and there is a postcard that came in. Mom, I want you to read this postcard that came in to Post Secrets. 
explain this postcard. Oh, so it's like an ink sketch of the towers. And it says, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. Is that Sneha? It is definitely speculated that that is Sneha. Now, there is no evidence saying that she left to go start another life. One, okay, so say she uses the bags. So she's got three pairs of shoes, lingerie, a dress, and bed linens. That's not enough to start a new life. The credit card she had was her husband's credit card, and it was last used at Century 21 and has not been used since then. She had nothing else on her. She didn't have any other credit cards on her, didn't didn't go into the bank and get cash, nothing. All right. If somebody were to totally start a new life, they could easily get a credit card in a different name or whatever, open a new bank account that nobody knows about. But she went to medical school. She was really close to her mom. How do you But just... it sounds like she was spiraling down anyway. Maybe she just, I mean, that was a sacrifice that she was willing to make to start all over. It sounds like she wasn't very happy with who she was. Or you can take a different look on it too, playing devil's advocate. Maybe she really was groped. Maybe she really was in a dark place. Nobody was listening to her. Nobody took her serious if she was sexually abused. Maybe it was more than just the simple grope. Maybe there was other stuff happening. And she really, yeah, she was going in a downward spiral because nobody was listening to her and alcohol was a way to cope. I know we laughed because it just seems so silly that Ron's just like, she's not having sex with this woman. They're painting. She's covered in paint because they painted all night. Like, and maybe that's just what he told himself to make her pain seem easier to him. I, you know, we don't know. No, we, we don't. can look at the, the, the facts. And the facts are, as I would like to believe that our police are not going to just make up some stuff. So the court did say it's hearsay. So the whole detective writing up that John walked in on Sneha and his girlfriend having sex. Now, that's supposedly hearsay because John says he never talked to that detective. So did John so the so did that detective get that information from somebody else? John's girlfriend? We don't know. I mean, we don't know. And so that's what it, who do you believe? Yeah, no kidding. You know, also how far Obviously, John went as far as lying to the media about talking to his sister on the phone. How far will you go to make sure that your sister, wife, daughter, that their name is not, you know, dragged through the mud or, or, you know, that they're honored? You know what I mean? But actually pulling her name to the forefront like that caused an investigation and caused her name to be because otherwise police were ignoring what her husband was trying to get well i think they i don't know if they're necessarily ignoring i just don't think that they were getting there as fast as he well they were inundated i mean there they was had too much so many on. people they're investigating i mean because these victims their families got money and so all these nine thousand names that went in they're not going to be able to pay all of these people they want to factually get the money to the right people they want to help 
the proper people out right. and give the help and counseling and everything to the actual people that deserve it. So they were working really hard to dwindle that list down as fast or as accurately as they could. So, you know, yeah, I know he wasn't getting answers right away. But so we no, hired you, the private investigator. But you had said initially he reported her as a missing person and they kind of didn't acknowledge that because, because they everybody were so hired a miss because they were so people. inundated and then finally after the brother had said that you know his phone call is when they put her on the list exactly because he so, said she's been missing technically since the 10th and they're like well i'm sorry but we're dealing with a bigger crisis we're dealing right with now. the 11th yes and so actually the brother's phone call put her on the radar i know so I understand why he lied. I mean, they're they're just trying to find answers. They're going to fight tooth and nail for the people they love. I know. I think we do the same. But it's just it's tough because you just don't know who to trust, especially when he does come out as being a liar. You're like, OK, well, what is the truth now? Right. So it's it's another one of those mind boggling things. So. Sneha's name was added to the official September 11th victims list with the other 2,976 victims who lost their lives that fateful day. And her name was added to the National September 11th Memorial at the South Pool on panel S66. And I've seen it. I've seen her name. One of our trips back to New York, we were going, it was my first time to the memorial and we were walking around And I had just listened to the Crime Junkie podcast on this episode. And I was like, oh, I wonder if we'd see her name. And literally, mom, I looked down and there it was. I was, we had just walked to the fountains. Your mind is going over all the victims and how sad it all is. And how just beautiful work they've done on these, on the memorial. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's just silence there. And it's just overwhelming. And the podcast kind of popped into my mind. And I was like, that was a really crazy story. And I looked down and there's her name. So I have seen it. It was pretty cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's all of it. It's just, it's crazy. It's so weird. Man. You know, you know, another thing to note too, you can look at the innocence of it. Like, I would like to believe good in all people. And I think maybe the lingerie she bought at Century 21, maybe that was a shower gift for that person that was getting married, her friend that was getting married in the spring. I had a lingerie party for my bachelorette party. So maybe that was for that. And the dress, maybe that was for her because she was going out to that shower. And the bed linens, maybe she just wanted to make up the couch for her cousin that was coming to visit. or Yeah, she wanted new bed linens Maybe they were on sale and she just wanted new bed linens for their home. I, and then the new shoes. I mean, come on. Girlfriend obviously got to deal with three pairs of shoes. Like well, Right. If they were on sale, why not get and three then of them? As she's shopping, you know, she runs into an old friend. Hey, hey, I'll go grab us a table. So, yeah, they're not seen leaving together because the other lady left and went to go grab her a table. And then they got to catching up and she's like, yeah, my husband's working late. Let's go hang out at your place and have a glass of wine and and catch up. And I haven't seen you in so long. Like, I just I don't know. There's so many different scenarios. It's a big city. Millions of people. You just don't know. No. And then she spent the night because it got late. And then in the morning she's walking back. And that fateful day. 
I still can't get over just being married a year and not at least <laughs> telling your husband you're going to spend the night somewhere. Oh, no. No. I mean, no, I made that the law when we were married. Like, you just, you've got to keep tabs on each other just to make sure everybody's not- okay, you're safe, especially if you're drinking, or if you're out late, or just, hey, honey, I got home from work. You know, it's just... It's just being respectful. Yeah, absolutely. It's your, it's your partner. You just want to... I mean... Even if you had just a roommate, it's still yeah. respectful to just let them know because, yeah, they're going to worry about you. That oh. that part didn't make sense. And then, oh, it wasn't unusual. Yeah, I guess it wasn't unusual, though, that she'd go out and she'd drink and she would just she'd sleep over at her cousin's just house. Some yeah, at her cousin's apartment a lot or her brother's apartment a lot. And so judging, but that doesn't seem like a very close. Well, marriage. they have doctors hours They're I don't know. I, I don't, honestly, mom, who are we to judge? Maybe that worked for them. Well, I'm not judging. That's but true. It's, it's just, wow. No answers. Mm-mm. Oh, that's really kind of sad. I know. I but mean, I just can't imagine not having answers. I know. To something. I'm that a person closure. who always wants answers. I know that, that final closure to figure out. is like. Well, I'm sad for Ron, and I'm very sad for her family, too, because they just are left in limbo. I know. I'm sad for, gosh, everybody that lost their lives that day. That whole thing is just, ugh. So there's almost three scenarios here. There's like a b- three million scenarios no, here. She either just left. Mm-hmm. Or she was. There was foul play. Or there's foul play, or she was lost actually lost at 9-11. I'm going to go drink my Sour Patch Kids now. That's what I'm calling it. All right. All right, guys. You can keep those listening ears on. You can take the thinking cap off now. Cheers. <laughs> Those were paranormal. Now you we're talking about a- ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait to hear what you're going to chat with us about. Yeah, this is that was kind of interesting to me. So I'm going to talk about the house of death. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Sounds awesome, Mom. You need death to paranormal, just saying. Oh, <laughs> shit, you're right. Unless we're doing <laughs> UFO stuff. Which oh, crap. In New York City at 14th West 10th Street sits an ordinary brownstone house in the heart of... Of Greenwich. The house was built in 1856. Awesome. And had many residents since. The first being the wife of James Borman. That name meant nothing to me, but he actually was a big wig in New York City. He helped establish a library, reading room, and gallery of art in New York. <gasps> the reading room. He was also, see, I didn't know what that was. It's beautiful. He was also the founder of the Metropolitan and Broadway Underground Railroads. Holy cow, that's He was awesome. a bigwig. In 1897, the house had a new tenant, cyclist, so he rode his bike. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, I don't have my thinking cap on anymore, <laughs> so. <laughs> Fred Andrew. And here is where the, quote, curse starts. It seems that he was out riding one day (laughs) when he collided with an eight-year-old boy. Oh, no. The boy broke his leg and Fred was arrested. What? 
How, wh- why is he arrested? It was an accident, right? Well, he's writing too fast. I don't know. <laughs> 1897. Okay. So Shoot. Years Be after this, Samuel Clemens, who is... Oh, God. I thought you'd know this. Hurry, whisper it to me so I sound <laughs> smart. Mark Twain. <laughs> Mark Twain? Uh-oh. Okay, honey. Yes. Put your drink down and put a thinking cap back <laughs> on. <laughs> okay, Mark Twain mm-hmm. moved into the home. Interestingly enough, he only lived there for about a year, during which he battled both depression and financial problems. A story about Twain and the house goes like this. Okay, now keep in mind, he was a definite ghost skeptic. Okay. Okay. One dark and stormy night. Here we go, guys. Uh, I've always wanted to say that. I don't know. Always wanted to say that. This is like the fourth time you've done that. I love that saying. I don't know if it's stormy. It was dark. Okay. (laughs) It was nighttime. (laughs) He was sitting by his fire. And he saw a small piece of wood move by itself. Now, this wood was on fire. No, this wood was outside of the fire. It was stacked, you know, ready to be thrown in the fire. Okay. Got it on fire. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a log moves. It wasn't a big log. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking it was a rat, he took a shot at it with his gun. Yeah, they're in New York. There's rats everywhere. The wood dropped to the floor along with drops of blood. He shot a rat. There were no rats in the building. The log was bleeding. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Twain. More than a thinking cap for this one. I don't know. (laughs) Twain refused to listen to the fact that there were no rats and insisted that the blood was from a rat. Now, I hasten to add here that Twain did not live longer than a year at the house physically. But... It seems he comes back to visit. To prove that it was a rat. Or shoot him, whatever. (laughs) His apparition has been seen walking up and down the staircase, which happens to be the most haunted part of the home. His footsteps are also heard throughout the house. In 1937, the house was renovated and turned into 10 separate apartments. A mother and daughter moved into one of the apartments, and it seems were visited by Twain. His ghost was sitting in a chair by a window, and he spoke to them, saying, My name is Clemens, and I has a problem here. I gotta settle. I read this in many different references. (laughs) My name is Clemens, but my name is Twain. His real name is in your house. (laughs) His real name is Clemens. And that's the problem. And I has a problem here. I gotta settle. Okay, moving on. In 1957, Jan... So he never shows up. I mean, that's a full sentence. That's like an apparition sitting there that turns and has a full sentence. I know. And this is repeated. Like I said, it wasn't just one source. This is repeated through many sources that I read. So it was like very interesting how that could have gotten out to so many, you know, and those exact words. It wasn't like, you know, weird. It was weird. It wasn't like, you know, weird. It was weird. I has a problem. <laughs> I has right a problem. Right now, my this drink is really strong. <laughs> In 1957, 
Jan Bryant Bartell, an actress and writer, and her husband moved into an apartment on the top floor. Bartell actually wrote a book called Spindrift Spray from a Psychic Sea, in which she documents... She seashells by the seashore. <laughs> no, she right. witnesses psychic things, in which she documents her paranormal experiences in the apartment. So I think this would actually be a very interesting book to read, but you have to get over the very proper way of writing. But oh, anyway, man. she wrote that she was always followed by a monstrous moving shadow. Oh, and she once saw a man's figure standing in the hallway. And when she reached out to touch him, she described what happened. Oh, I don't know if I know. I'm going to quote what is in the book. A substance without substance. Huh? Chilly, damp, diaphanous as marsh mist or a cloud of ether. I could feel my finger freezing at the tips. They were numb and yet they tingled. In the split second between contact and recoil, the scent came. Fragile and languorous and sweet. Unbearably cloying sweet. She talks about, in the book, she talks about finding rotten food on the kitchen table, but food she nor her husband bought. What? Just random food. Their dog would often growl and bark at a chair in their home as if there was a person there that he was uncomfortable with, but there was nobody, obviously, in the seat. Bartell went so far as to hire a paranormal expert who after visiting the house that there was as many as 22 ghosts in the house. 22? There's only been a handful of residents. Oh my gosh. 22. What? It's our 22nd episode. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. That just All the dogs just jumped up. That just really creeped me out. It just hit me. Oh no. Oh no. I might be my pants. <laughs> oh my god, that's really creepy. I just got really scared. That's freaking weird. Okay. Mom, that's weird. All right, guys. Seriously, go back to your story, Mom. <laughs> guys, stop laughing, okay? She's trying to tell a story. Stop interrupting her. Okay, go on, Mom. Sorry. Then terrifying things happen. <laughs> <laughs> and Bartell writes of these also in her book. Oh, good. Deaths began to occur in the building. She began called, to occur. Okay. She called it a game of ten little Indians. You know the book, the story by Agatha yes, Christie. I do actually yeah. love that story. Anyway, it, it's a good one. First was their dog, unfortunately. Aww. Then, twenty-four hours later, she found out about the first death of the building's tenants. Different causes. Natural, suicide, and even murder. But nonetheless, what? nine deaths. Bartell and her husband moved far and passed away. I'm surprised she waited that long to do that. But a few weeks after she finished writing this book that I'm quoting, in 1974, Bartell was found dead. <gasps> what? Her death a complete mystery. What? Was she the 10th little Indian? No. Are you serious, Mom? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'm going to get this shit up. <laughs> I did my research. Mom, don't lie to get, to, to get listeners. Why am I talking like that? No. I, I, it, that is so crazy. Okay, now we move to November 2nd, 1987. 911 operators got a call at 6.40 a.m. The caller saying that her six-year-old daughter, Lisa, was not breathing. Oh, gosh. The paramedics arrived at the, quote, death house and walked into a horrible scene. In the home lived criminal defense lawyer, Joel Steinberg, hmm. with his girlfriend, Hedda Nussbaum, a writer of children's books, and along with two young children, Lisa, six, and Mitchell, 17 months. Mm. Now, both of these children had been adopted by Steinberg. Okay. The defense lawyer. Yes. Lisa was lying, the little girl, was lying on the kitchen floor naked, bruised, and unresponsive. She died at the hospital three days later. Oh, my gosh. Her autopsy revealed that she had died of blunt force trauma to her head. Oh, my gosh. Mitchell, the baby, was tied to his playpen. Soaked with urine and his diaper just overflowing with everything else. I mean, he had just been totally neglected. Nussbaum, the female partner, had a split lip, broken ribs, a broken nose, and a fractured jaw. In the apartment, police found marijuana, cocaine, hashish, over 20 crack pipes, and $25,000 in cash. Oh, my gosh. Both Nussbaum and Steinberg were arrested. Nussbaum avoided prison by testifying against Steinberg. She said that he was on a, quote, cocaine binge when he beat Lisa and Nussbaum. Oh, my God. Steinberg was sent to prison for second-degree murder. He was released in 2004 after serving 17 years. What? The house is now privately owned. But there are still reports of paranormal activity from the homeowners. It has also been reported that ghosts have, well, seemed to venture throughout the neighborhood. <laughs> They're getting bored. Light side see. Lights. Let's go see the Statue of Liberty. That's coming. Oh, whoa. <laughs> Lights flicker. A female in a long gown has been seen floating through doors. Long gown. It's never a short skirt. So it's a long gown. It's always a beautiful long (laughs) white gown. A resident photographer admits that ghosts have scared away his subjects, his photo subjects. He tells the story of having a dancer that he was taking pictures of in his living room. He left her alone for a few minutes. While he was gone, the girl saw a woman in a long flowing gown, followed by a cat. Oh, Walk into the room. Okay, the cat would have scared me. (laughs) A ghost cat. She grabbed her stuff and ran, never to come back again. (laughs) I will add here that many of the buildings along the street have housed famous people and maybe now be the home to the same spirits. Cool. For instance, the spirit of Emma Lazarus has been seen in her old home, number 18. Lazarus is the woman who wrote the New Colossus, which is the poem on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. 
I was bringing that up as a joke. That's really weird. So she lived in the street. Other people who lived on the block are mystery writer Deschelle Hammett and his partner Lily Hellman, who wrote the play Little Foxes. Edgar Allan Poe lived at number 17. This was his last known residence in New York City. And it is said, the home where his heart was broken when his marriage proposal was rejected by a woman he deeply loved. Oh, his sappiness is everywhere. I'm going to talk about him in next week's story. That's what's so funny. So take a walk by the death house. See if Mark Twain is peering out of the window searching for that problem he has to settle. Rats. But don't forget to get the whole vibe of the street while you're there. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's so neat. I'd never heard that story. Yeah. Oh, this is another good one, Mom. Yeah, it actually was. It very actually it. was. She's very surprised. <laughs> no, I, I just hadn't heard of the story you Sneha had. This, Anne Phillips. And you didn't know my story, so it was no. good. <laughs> it's educational. Cheers to that. I don't have any more of my drink, clearly because of all of my ramblings. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We love that you guys are loving the podcast. If you've been to any of these places in this episode or any others that we've covered, email us. If you have stories of your own, email us. Again, we are getting a couple small little episodes here and there. We're recording when we can, and we're trying to figure out a good time to air them, but it's going to be personal stories. So keep them coming so we can keep getting these good episodes together. Uh, You can email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook. You can find us at killerhangoverpodcast. We're on Instagram as well at killerhangover. And I'll post pictures from this week's episode and everything kind of relevant, if I can ever stay relevant, um, to all the cases we've ever covered. Mom is still going to keep us up to date on the Lori Vallow case. All right, guys, next week we're going to be covering stories South Carolina. Oh, and I'll have to tell you that this story that I have true crime gave me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, mom was like, oh, what state should we do? And I was like, let's do South Carolina. And she goes, okay, I have the true crime. Who should I do from South Carolina? I said, oh, my God, you should do this guy. Sorry, mom. Yeah, thanks. He gave me more heebie-jeebies than Dahmer did. And that's saying something. Anyway. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay. Guys, thank you so much for listening. This was fun. Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid.